friends and welcome to the podcast where we believe that the word of God is able to give wisdom that leads to salvation which is in Christ Jesus, that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training. My aim is to help Christ followers be adequately equipped for every good work through biblical literacy. And because that is a lifetime commitment, grab a pen, a book, and your Bible, because we're going to be here for a while. Genesis 1 verses 26 to 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let us make man. This passage of scripture has traditionally been interpreted as referring to the Trinity, meaning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we have learned. However, a concept on the Trinity would have been a very confusing concept to introduce to the newly freed people who had been living in a polytheistic culture for more than 400 years. The hearers would not have heard one God who exists as three distinct, co-eternal, co-equal, divine persons. Israel would have understood the us to mean God and his divine counsel. In the ancient Near East, Gods were believed to have a divine council or royal assembly, in the same way earthly kings had councils. Think King Arthur and his knights, who worked to carry out Arthur's decrees and ensure peace in all his kingdoms or territories. The members of the divine council were also created beings, though heavenly in nature. These heavenly beings handled the more administrative tasks, but God alone made the final decisions, which the heavenly council carried out. They are not as God is in his sovereignty. He alone is the uncreated creator and the source of all existence in both earthly and heavenly realms. The heavens praise his wonder. The earth is his and the fullness thereof, the scriptures say. So the divine council, though made up of supernatural beings, still fall at his feet crying, Holy, holy, holy. God alone is worshipped by them and us. He alone 
is the head of the council and he alone has the authority and ability to decree let there be. The divine council, though allowed to make suggestions, are still subject to him. God chooses to partner with both divine and earthly creatures or people. But Yahweh alone is to be greatly feared. And so, when the Creator says, Let us make man, it is Yahweh, the Most High God alone, in whose image man is created. It is Yahweh who does the creating while the Divine Council looks on, worshipping his wondrous works. Nehemiah 9 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, all with all their hosts, the earth, all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. And you preserve all all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Throughout the ancient Near East, images were believed to contain or carry the nature of the thing or person it represented. Not its full likeness, but in ways that affirmed the authority of the person or thing in the location it was placed. The image carried their essence, and the essence meaning the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something or someone. But in general, the king was the one spoken of as the image of the God of the people he ruled. So the king was the living embodiment of the God his particular nation worshipped. Being the image of the deity gave him power and certain privileges that common men and women were simply not afforded. In Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq or Syria, as well as in Egypt, where Israel had been for four centuries, the kings were described as being the image of the chief deity worshipped in that nation. And so, whenever a king conquered and controlled vast territories, because he wasn't able to be in all those places at all times, would have statues or monuments of themselves placed in those areas to reflect that the area was under his protection and dominion. The image or statue would reflect the authority and presence of the king and the deity he represented. These royal images didn't capture the actual physical features of the king. They were not perfectly molded sculptures or paintings, but rather sought to represent the aspects in the king's character or physique that had been lended to him by the gods. The monuments or the statues would display features that reminded those who looked on that the king or the pharaoh was the image of Ra or Baal. 
one king was literally referred to as the perfect likeness of God. The image's role is to literally be the hands and feet of a God. And so a king was responsible for carrying out the plans of the God through his subjects. In the same way, the monuments pointed to a living king having dominion over that area. The living king was the image of a god. He pointed to a supernatural being who had dominion over both king and his subjects and whose agenda was advanced. The king of Pharaoh did that on behalf of the deity. The biblical view is similar to its contemporary cultures with their understanding of people being image bearers of God. However, their view radicalized and also universalized it more than any other people group around them. Yahweh democratized this concept of belief. For the God of the Bible, all people, regardless of gender, social status, and financial means, were made in the image of God. Yahweh was teaching them that every member of society, from the youngest to the very oldest, male or female, embodies the qualities and characteristics of Yahweh in a very unique way. Each person, in their own way, pointed to the true king who was God. Each person was responsible for carrying out the work that Yahweh wanted done on the earth. And finally, in Israel, every person was given royal scriptures which gave every man, woman, and child inherent value. Each member of society was a living monument that pointed to and symbolized Yahweh's dominion, presence, and rule over the territory they lived in and essentially the world. In God's economy, we are all called to act on his behalf. Unlike in Egypt or Canaan, where the masses were considered as slaves and second-class citizens, after the king, his family, and his royal court. So when God instructs Israel not to make graven images of anything in the sky, on the earth, or in the sea, it is because God has chosen to represent himself in living, breathing, thinking, and free-willed monuments or statues. You and I are royal images put all over the world 
a signpost of God's dominion in the territories we exist in. And our job is to reflect the qualities and character of the God we represent. In my life, I am called to be a light, Matthew 5.14, and salt of the earth, verse 13, which all means that, that I am called to be a pointer to the one who saves. All of mine and your wonderful traits are just mirror images of the God who gave them to us and in their fullness to be found in him. When people experience mercy or compassion from me, it is not so that I can keep the worship for myself, but that these qualities might point them to Christ, who has within himself mercy and compassion in their purest form and who can give perfectly and endlessly. Love shown to others points to the God whose love saves. John 3.16 Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Contrary to concerns of overpopulation in other contemporary cultures, Yahweh instructs humanity to increase. God endows the man and woman with four blessings at creation, which were to be fruitful, to increase or fill the earth, to subdue it, and to rule. One writing from ancient Babylon portrays the gods as being anxious at the increase of the human population because in their opinion, the increase or or multiplication of the human race would lead to an increase in noise and an increase in problems between men which would be more admin for the gods. And because of these concerns, the gods brought on plagues, famine, and drought to combat this increase in the population. Yahweh, however, desires people to multiply without limitations. So in Yahweh's kingdom, man and woman are not only made as living monuments or royal images of the king of glory, they were also given the blessing of fruitfulness or the ability to be productive. One thing that strikes One thing that sticks out to me is how these blessings or instructions are part of humanity's roles as images and and mirror reflections of God. The first six days of creation have been God laying down the blueprint for what humanity was to do. He's basically saying, I've given you this earth to repeat over and over all over the world what I have done in this garden. This section really answers the question of who we all are at our core. In a world that offers us so many different points of identity to define ourselves by, our race, our gender, sexuality, cultural backgrounds, bank balance, number of followers or our level of education or physical appearance, 
Day six of the creation account places emphasis on the human soul and its likeness to the God of the whole world, which is far weightier than any title or anything that the world could ever offer. Genesis 1 tells me that the king had a monument or royal image that has characteristics and qualities built into it to communicate to all who look on what the king of heaven is like. Have you been told that you were really gifted in some way? Maybe you are artistic or very good with your hands. Have you been told that you were kind, patient or compassionate? Are you yet to find out? All those traits are gifting or giftings are not random. They are literal reflections of the God who holds everything together. You are a monument, a signpost that points to a king. And that alone makes you so incredibly valuable. God did not put his image in statues or in one specific person. He put it in living, breathing humans made and called to kingdom work. Genesis 1.28 continues to say, Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. It says to subdue and rule. These descriptions were often applied to kings and members of the royal family. And so when Yahweh firstly describes people as image carriers or as being the image of God and secondly blessing them with the ability to increase and instructions to subdue and rule, which were for those with royal vocations or only applied to kings, Yahweh was saying that Israel and all of humanity was meant to function as a society with equal worth and responsibility. All members of the community are responsible for bringing about order to their world through specific giftings God had given them. This is in stark contrast to the role of humanity in the ancient Near East, where people were created to live in service to the gods. One Babylonian account of the creation of man teaches that after a battle between the gods, they asked each other the question of who would take on the work of maintaining the proper working of the cosmos, since the gods whose job it was to do that had rebelled. One of the older deities suggested that they, and I quote, create a servant of the gods, humankind out of clay and blood, end quote. And so, while the rest of the ancient Near East believed that humans were created to serve the gods under the oversight of a king, who was their representative on earth, Genesis points to a different picture. All people were made in the image of Yahweh and all endowed with royal blessings and responsibilities. God had not made them out of boredom or necessity. They were not made to be slaves like Pharaoh had reduced them to in Egypt. They had been made by a generous and self-sufficient God who wanted people to freely choose to love and partner with him. This was internet breaking self. Genesis 1, 29-30 Then God said, 
I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, and everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every plant for food. And it was so. For Israel's neighbors, it was believed that humanity was created to perform the lowly tasks for providing food for the gods. In Mesopotamia, the god Enki provides living creatures as food for humankind, which is in turn charged with looking after the needs of the gods. They must in turn provide food for the gods. However, Yahweh in Genesis, who has no rivals and no equals, the one from whom all things come, plants a garden from which both humans and the animals would eat. Even though people are the height of God's creation, Genesis still has God as the subject of the book. Genesis is first and foremost about Yahweh. When Israel heard it, they knew that God was at the center of all of it. Genesis reveals a God who is one and unlike any other, and whose motivations flow from his very character. Yahweh, he is kind, and our good is always his focus. I think one question I would like us to walk away from today's episode is, what does it look like to be an image of God in my own context? If I am a living and breathing monument, a physical representation of God the King, a marker to show his dominion and rule, if people are meant to look at me and my life and know who God is in my actions and speech, what should that look like at home, work, and in all my relationships? Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that you found this episode helpful and that it motivates you to run harder after the Lord. See you next week. Goodbye for now, my friends. Thank you.